I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, this is Naomi Kalachand from the Genomics England podcast, The G Word. Join us every fortnight as we cover everything from the latest in cutting-edge genomics research to real-life stories from people affected by rare conditions and cancer. Each week, we'll bring you an extraordinary lineup of guests, not to mention we also have a back catalogue for you to choose from. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, friends, and welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. And the day this episode comes out is Rare Disease Day 2024. As probably all of you know, Rare Disease Day is always the last day of February. And this year is extra special, being on the 29th, as it is a leap year. So I am looking forward to following all of the festivities across the world and watching you all share your stories and shine your lights as we navigate through through this rare disease journey, I know it's a club that nobody expected nor wanted to be in, but alas, here we are. And I just want to thank you all for contributing in whatever way you have, even if it is simply listening to this podcast and feeling a little closer to community. I know this isn't easy, and I know that nobody necessarily wants to hear Happy Rare Disease Day in, you know, in the, in the traditional form, but I want you to know that this community is so tight, and we are changing the world, and we love our families fiercely, and we're all just rocking it, and so I want you to be happy that you are not alone today, and I hope that you feel some sort of connection and that you feel some sort of inspiration to keep it up, to get up, to contribute, to take action, whatever it is for you. Thank you for being here. And speaking of Rare Disease Day and across the world, I actually have on some new friends. I have a genetic counselor from Genomics England. So I'm talking to all my, my friends across the pond today. This, this content is relevant for everyone. Genomics England is doing some amazing work and she's going to go over all their initiatives and kind of give us um, a big rundown of what's going on there at Genomics England. So I'm super proud to have them on the show and share, share a little bit about their mission. You're going to love my guest. She's so adorable and sweet and funny and smart. I could have listened to her talk about so many subjects like for forever, but of course I have to keep it tight. Anyways, I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Again, reach out and send someone in the rare disease community some love today. Do something good and remember that you are not alone and we are in this fight together and we are stronger together. So please enjoy my conversation with Amanda Bikini. 
Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Everybody in my world adores a genetic counselor, and it's been a while since I've had one on the show, so I'm excited to welcome one, and one from, like, uh, what do they say? Across the pond. So, yeah, Amanda, you're a genetic counselor in the UK, and you're on staff at Genomics England, so I'm really excited to learn more about what you're doing and all of your initiatives and really speak to some of... The, our listeners here that are that are over there so that this will be helpful to. So please introduce yourself. Um, maybe give us a quick little explanation of what your role is as a genetic counselor at Gen- Genomics England, and maybe a little bit of your of your track to getting there. Sure. Thank you so much. And uh, as you can probably tell, my accent is from the your side of the pond uh, because I'm from Canada originally. So yeah, my name's my name's Amanda Pekini, and I'm a genetic counselor first and foremost. And I now work at Genomics England as the director for clinical implementation. And that means that I'm responsible for our sort of strategic clinical leadership for our different products and services that I'm sure we'll discuss as we have our chat. And it's helping to make sure that all of the sort of research and diagnostic and clinical programs that we support are in line with the latest healthcare standards and knowledge. And prior to joining Genomics England, I worked as a genetic counselor in the health service after being trained in Canada. It's actually a profession that I've been interested in for quite a long time. Ever since I started studying biology, I was really keen to do something that allowed me to communicate and speak to people, but also do something that was quite sciencey. And I wasn't quite drawn to being a doctor or a lab researcher, and I came across the title of genetic counseling as a profession and I was absolutely fascinated by it and haven't looked back since. So it's it's a small profession as you may know there's about 400 genetic counselors in the UK which is um, a lot less than there is in the US and in North America. So we're quite a niche profession compared to several tens of thousands of nurses that we have in the health service here. But uh, like genetic counselors elsewhere in the world, our role usually is in a patient-facing setting. So we see patients and families that have a history of a genetic condition or a suspected genetic condition or something running in their family. And it's really about helping them to understand and adapt to not just the health consequences of having that risk or that condition, but also the kind of broader psychological impact that can have in a person's life and the broader impact that can have on their wider family. So in my role, now at Genomics England, whilst it's not a patient-facing role, I bring a lot of those skills that genetic counselors have in understanding the complexities of genetics in healthcare and how we communicate that sort of verbally in writing in various ways to different audiences to how we design and deliver a lot of our programs. So um, that includes how we approach consent, how we approach returning results, how we work with the healthcare professionals in the health service to make sure that any of the genomic testing or the studies we're doing can be safely kind of returned back into care and we can make the most of the research opportunities we have. Mm, Awesome. Only 400 genetic counselors in the UK. I think we have about 5,000 in the US. And we need about 50,000 more, especially in the next coming years. So thank you for the commercial on why everyone should go think about being a genetic counselor on your way there. I think most people, at least for me, when I think of Genomics England, at least in the beginning of my journey, I immediately just thought of the Human Genome Project, the 10,000 Genomes Project, whatever it's called now. Can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe is that sort of Genomics England's origin story? 
So genomics England has a really interesting origin story, actually, that came a little bit after the original Human Genomes Project. Obviously, that was really significant because that was the first time that we were able to have a whole sequence of a human genome, which feels so easy now because we can sequence a genome in a day in theory. But at the time, that was an absolutely monumental moment for for science and, and I think for society, really. But for Genomics England, we actually started in 2013. So after the London Olympics in 2012, David Cameron, the prime minister at the time, announced um, about um, starting Genomics England. So we are a company that's wholly owned by the Department of Health and Social Care. And that's really quite unique because it means that we are a government-funded, mostly, organization. Uh, it means that we're responsible to the government and therefore to the UK public as well. And also, we work closely with the National Health Service because in the UK, there are nationally uh, public-funded healthcare service. So that means that we're in a really unique position to be able to work with a lot of different people on the clinical side, but also on the research side, because we were set up to also hold a um, research environment that safely holds consented data from now well over 100,000 participants who have agreed to have their genome and health data made available to researchers for the purposes of ongoing research to, to genes and health. And so really the purpose for setting up Genomics England at that time was to really guess, show the, the value that genomic testing could bring to patient care, particularly to patients who have rare conditions that aren't yet diagnosed or where there isn't a treatment available, um, and to patients with cancer where more rapid testing or greater knowledge of our genome can help us to find out more about how cancers are diagnosed and treated um, in a more rapid way. So the sort of flagship project that Genomics England was set up to deliver was called the 100,000 Genomes Project. It's a little bit more than 10,000. Yeah, I was like, I know I said 10,000 right when I said it. Well, there was a previous 10,000 Genomes Project, but this was the 100,000 Genomes Project. And that really aimed at, again, patients and families with rare conditions and cancer. And it was really trying to show what whole genome sequencing could do. So we've been really used to looking at one gene at a time or a few genes at a time, but we hadn't done a lot of whole genome sequencing, which essentially means sequencing all of a person's DNA at once. That was quite new. And that meant that we had much better potential to find diagnoses or information in the genome that could help with treatment and management than we ever could before when we were looking at different parts of the genome in a much more piecemeal way. So that project was really quite significant, not only because we were able to find diagnoses in, on average, around a quarter of the participants, say, with a rare condition, which Although that still means there's a large number of people still without a diagnosis, that was a much more significant jump in being able to give a diagnosis than other tests that came before it. But we were also able to really um, kind of stimulate research around genomic testing. So again, all of those participants, their data, their genome and health data continues to be safely stored in a protected research environment we have. And thousands of researchers that are approved through an independent committee that includes participants whose data is held in that environment um, can use that data to help make further discoveries about links between genes and disease, um, potential links to develop new therapies, and just broaden our understanding about genes and health. So that, that program really helps to um, both find diagnoses for families, stimulate research, and, and really, I guess, transformed our National Health Service because it really brought genetics and genomics much more to the forefront of day-to-day -day care. So it became not just 
the job of a genetic counselor or a clinical genetic geneticist to think about genetics, but also the job of pediatricians and nurse specialists and pharmacists to think about genetics as part of their day-to-day role, that it was another tool, another technology that they could use. Uh, and that's something that's really helped to transform care that we're continuing, hopefully, to see in, in the longer term. Yes, definitely with like having other specialties like consider this as part of their practice. Yeah. I love that. It's got to continue to be so exciting to come to work with the speed that genetics is moving. That's such a cool story. Thanks for sharing that. I was recently at the uh, Precision World Med Conference and Genomics England got a shout out in one of the panels. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to me about some of the initiatives and the new kind of projects that you're working on there? Sure. So um, since the 100,000 Genomes Project, I won't say ended because again, those participants' data continues to be available and and looked at and and many have continued to receive diagnoses through research where we didn't find them initially. But recruitment and return of initial findings to the project has drawn to a close. So Genomics England now has a number of other areas of focus as well, including offering, uh, working with the NHS to provide genome sequencing as a standard clinical test now. So that's moved from the research space to being a commissioned service in um, the publicly funded healthcare system for um, individuals with certain types of rare diseases and cancers. Um, And again, that's something that doesn't necessarily have to be a genetic specialist that requests that test. It could be that that comes from another specialist that is requesting that test or another kind of genetic test. And that's something that we've worked really hard to make sure that different healthcare professionals really understand what it means to request a test like that, how to help take families through the process of consent and understanding what some of the potential results could be, but also what some of the limitations are of doing um, genome sequencing. Um, And that's really important because, you know, we know that there's so many families that have been waiting for a diagnosis for a really long time. They might often struggle to find the right specialist that can pick up when something might be going wrong and where a child or an adult needs further investigations and where that's something that could be genetic, especially when it's something rare, because this isn't necessarily on the day-to-day radar of many healthcare professionals. So um, it's really kind of come along with a big push to educate and train the workforce to think about um, when to think about genome sequencing as part of care for their patient. Uh, So that's a big part of what Genomics England does. But we've also, um, over the past few years, been focusing on a few other initiatives um, including looking at um, different kinds of sequencing technology that we can use to enhance the testing and care that we give for um, patients with cancer. And then also a a newborn genomes program, uh, which is a large part of my role at the moment. And that involves um, a large scale national research study called the Generation Study, which will see um, us sequence the genomes of around 100,000 newborn babies with consent from their parents. And that study really aims to help us understand whether genome sequencing in the newborn period can help us to identify a larger number of rare conditions earlier in life, and ideally with the aim that we can improve the quality of life and outcomes for those babies with those rare conditions that we identify early on. So the newborn sequencing, is that happening at at a specific clinic or location? Or are they babies in the NICU? Are they sick already? Do they have a reason to maybe getting? Or is this just an opt-in sort of thing, like when a, when a woman is like about to give birth? Yeah, it's really broad. So um, maybe some helpful context here would be um, 
about newborn screening in the UK. And I'm sure in the US, every state um, has a newborn screening program that usually will involve a child having a small heel prick a few days after birth. And the blood spot from that heel prick is used to look for a range of different rare conditions. We have a similar process in the UK, which is by consent. So parents are asked um, when the child is around five days old, whether this is something that they are happy for their babies to have and that it's recommended because as public health, that would look for rare conditions that could be treated if found early and, and that we know could really improve the lives of those children if we found them. So in the UK at the moment, we test for nine rare but serious conditions. And there's a couple of others that are being evaluated to become part of that program at the moment. The generation study is an optional extra on top of the kind of standard screening that we'd still encourage um, every parent to have. And it's running as a research study because we really need to gather evidence to answer the question, is using genome sequencing in this way going to be helpful if we did it for all newborns at a certain point in time? Would it actually help us find a larger number of rare conditions earlier and giving enough um, support to families afterwards? Um, or might there be negative consequences to that that should tell us we shouldn't do it or that we shouldn't do it in that way? So that's why we're running it as a research study that is optional. It will be offered to parents in a range of different hospital sites across England, and we've tried to make sure that there's a lot of variability in the hospitals that we chose so that we weren't just focusing on, say, a very research active large hospital in London. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that hospitals throughout England with diversity and geography and the communities of people who use those hospitals could have access to a study like this and also to help us understand whether this kind of approach worked in a, in a range of settings. You don't have to be a parent who has a known history of a rare condition or a baby who might already be ill to take part because we really want to try this as a screening approach. So the idea is many people may not know whether or not their child could have one of these rare conditions, but we might be able to find it early even if there weren't any other signs that would have pointed us in that direction. So parents will be approached around midway through pregnancy, although each site might have a slightly different approach about exactly when and how they approach parents. But the aim is that they'd have access to a range of information, both sort of written and online and in various various formats so that they can make an informed decision to take part before the baby's born. Uh, and that after baby's born, then a cord blood sample, so to get a small amount of blood from the umbilical cord, would be taken. And that's what would be used to carry out the genome sequencing and look for just over kind of 200 rare conditions that we feel would have an intervention that could be put in place early if we found it, and that then we can monitor those families to help us understand if that approach um, worked or not. Because these conditions are so rare, we think that only around 1% of the 100,000 babies in the study will be flagged as a potential of having one of those conditions that require following up to confirm that diagnosis. But for those 1,000 of the 100,000, we think the benefits could potentially be enormous, which is this same case with uh, newborn screening in general, many of these conditions can be quite, quite rare, but the impact for those families that have them can be really significant. And, and that's why we think it, this is worth doing. Uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you, it's definitely worth doing and it will make a difference for sure. Okay, so you're only searching for 200 conditions then. So the 200 conditions that you're looking for, I'm assuming, are conditions that have some sort of treatment available. Yeah, that's actually was a really interesting process that we undertook to get to that part of the study because there are 
potentially thousands of conditions that someone could find if they looked at someone's DNA, but there might be some operational reasons or ethical reasons why we don't want to look for everything. And everyone has a slightly different opinion based on their own experience about maybe how broadly or narrowly we should be looking at different conditions. So um, we made the decision, and this was following a lot of engagement with members of the UK public, members of uh, rare disease communities and patient organizations, also just parents, because again, the parents that are choosing to take part in the study, most of them won't have knowledge or experience of a rare condition themselves. So we really felt it was important to get their perspectives too, as well as those families that have had experience living with one of these rare conditions. Um, and also healthcare professionals and scientists who have experience managing uh, many of these conditions in, in the health service. So we used a kind of consensus approach initially with a working group to help us distill down the types of conditions that we would look for. And we came up with four principles, which essentially say that we want to make sure that the gene and the changes in those genes we're looking for, to the best of our knowledge, will actually cause that condition to happen. Uh, we don't want to leave families with lots of uncertainties about whether something will or won't happen in the future. Um, and also that these are conditions where there's some kind of intervention in early childhood that we think, again, to the best of our knowledge, can improve outcomes for them. And we use the word intervention quite deliberately because it means that it doesn't necessarily have to be a cure or a drug gene therapy treatment. Um, it could be that for some of these conditions, it means that a dietary change or dietary management would be really helpful. Or there's a condition called xeroderma pigmentosum, where children are many, many times more likely to get skin cancers from exposure to sunlight. So that early awareness to avoid sunlight exposure and build in those practices as soon as possible can help to improve outcomes. So um, there can be a wide range of interventions that, that might be considered. All that being said, though, we know there's many, many more conditions that could be diagnosed in childhood and where there isn't necessarily any kind of quote unquote intervention that could be done. That doesn't demean the importance of those conditions because we know that even just having that knowledge of a diagnosis is so important for families because they can be thinking about life plans. They might be thinking about future children and choices around that. So that is extremely important, but we're taking, I guess, a relatively conservative and cautious approach to starting the study, focusing on those that have some kind of intervention. And then the hope is that we can learn about that more over time and may be able to expand that further in the future. Yeah, hopefully that'd be great. I mean, obviously, I think I speak for so many in the rare disease community that I'm on team information and team knowledge. And also, you know, that uh, that a patient advocacy org is a form of a treatment because uh, you're going to find out sooner or later. And I think that having that knowledge before is really empowering and really lessens the trauma and, you know, a lot of the ways that maybe your child's medical treatment is leading up to that. But anyways, that's very cool. Thanks for going in depth with that. Do the families get back that data too? Like, do they get like the copies of this report or do they get any information back from you other than if they were positive? Yeah. So we'll return a result on every participant. And so for those hundred or sorry, for those thousands that we suspect might have a condition, there'll be much more careful follow-up. We'd be linking them with the relevant specialist team in the health service to make sure that they can have the follow-up tests that they need to confirm that diagnosis and then um, have the follow-on sort of treatment and management that they might need, including additional funding we're providing for genetic counseling support 
support because that time when you hear that result, again, even if there are benefits of knowing that information and being able to do something about it, that point at which you first hear that news, especially as a new parent, is going to be a shock and an extremely difficult time no matter what. And so we know it's important to have that support in place early on because that sort of period can be um, so critical to kind of have access to the right information and links to to patient organizations once that diagnosis is made. For those other 99,000 or so participants where we don't suspect they'll have a condition, we will be informing them of that either by email or letter, depending on their preference. And it was almost just as important that we carefully worded what that communication looked like because we wanted to make sure that we weren't that we were being really clear about what that result means we're not giving baby a clean bill of health we're really just saying that we've looked for select types of changes in certain genes causing some conditions and we didn't find any through this research study but if a family was otherwise worried about their history or their child's health that they should still be doing the usual kind of processes and also that healthcare professionals should be making the same kinds of referrals as normal. So um, we're also informing GPs of those participants so that primary care is also aware even just broadly about the study to help dispel any potential misconceptions about those results, including differences between our study and the national kind of newborn screening program that we're really working hard to make sure we don't don't disrupt. I love that so much. I really appreciate that transparency and all the TLC that you've taken to make sure that families are informed properly and also given resources at that time. Because, you know, believe it or not, that still doesn't really happen all the time. Yeah, I mean, and it's a really, it's a complex and difficult journey. And I'm sure we'll find that we haven't done everything perfectly remotely at all. But it's been really, I think, something that's been really core to us from the beginning, that kind of principle of co-design, that we we can't necessarily just design this study completely unilaterally. Um, and we couldn't do it without the healthcare professionals and the patient groups that um, play such a huge role with those participants. So whether that's been through working groups or specific engagement pieces of work, or uh, we have a couple of user researchers in our team who have gone out and done either interviews or surveys or shadowing with parents to help us test what some of our materials and key messages sound like to different audiences. Um, All of that has been super important to helping us make sure that the kind of information that we can communicate and the kind of pathways we set up for participants are as robust as possible. Um, And hopefully as we start to run the study um, this year, we'll we'll start to get some feedback about how well that's working and where it's not working. And maybe we need to revisit what we've done and make some improvements and keep learning from there. Mm Mm-hmm. When do you project that the last baby is going to be finished and the data is going to start to be analyzed and kind of all put together? At the moment, we have funding until end of March 2025. And beyond that period, um, we'd have to kind of continue to, to sort of apply for, for further funding, but we'll be collecting data along the way. So from the moment when the study starts, hopefully very soon this year, then we'll be collecting data about uptake on consent rates. Um, are we finding that there are, that there's a, a lot more people declining maybe than we might expect? It's perfectly normal and expected that people choose not to take part in a research study, but we want to be able to understand why that might be and making sure that there's general equitable access as much as possible. Um, And then as those results start to come through, we'll be kind of getting data from each of those closely. We want to find out if the result was confirmed or not, um, being able to follow up with families um, afterwards to understand what their experiences were like. And we're working with a kind of external group who's uh, 
based out of a um, academic institution in the UK. And that includes kind of people with expertise in health economics and behavioral science and social science and data science that would be helping with those interviews and surveys with families and healthcare professionals um, along the way so we can get some early signals about how the how the study's working. Awesome. Well, I think so many people are going to be following this closely because we've been seeing these kinds of projects pop up and it's very exciting. Talk about the patient support in the UK and in what ways did Genomics England and you as a genetic counselor work with patient advocacy groups to support? Yeah, I mean, as, as a genetic counselor in my patient facing role, I mean, I think that's always been an integral part of a genetic counselor's training. One of the key elements of our role is to really help act as an advocate for patients and families with rare conditions, because again, that, that journey can be a very isolating one. And often it's difficult to come across a healthcare professional or anyone else that can not understand, but at least appreciate and help navigate that journey that that individual or that family is going through. And for a genetic counselor, patient support groups are absolutely integral to that because whilst we can provide a lot of that sort of short-term and solution-focused support to help families deal with the impact of a result on them and their family, there's also, you know, the much wider impact that a rare condition or that a cancer can have on someone's life. And we can't, you know, we, we certainly can't necessarily replace the, the value that comes from being able to speak to another family or individual that's had the same condition and may not have exactly the same experience because everyone's journey is unique, but um, that's had some similar experiences that that can really help to relate to them. And even just navigating things like how to work out benefits applications, um, how to get kind of disability accommodations at work or school, all of these things that can be really challenging or somewhat complex day-to-day -day things that patient organizations are so crucial at providing. And they're also really helpful at providing information. So again, as a genetic counselor, if I was seeing a patient with a condition that I'd maybe never come across before, one of the first places I would go to, as well as looking at kind of academic literature, was what kind of patient information is out there and what kind of language is being used to describe that condition and what are the experiences based on that patient information site that it, it seems that families are having, that that's a really crucial part that then um, I can help to pass on to patients. So in the generation study, for example, we've been working really closely with Genetic Alliance UK. I believe there's also a Genetic Alliance in the US as well. But Genetic Alliance UK is a kind of umbrella organization uh, and a policy organization that has, I think, over 200 members that are individual kind of patient charities. And they really help to, I guess, represent a lot of those um, charities that include rare and genetic conditions and help make sure that their voices are heard within government and in other kind of research um, and clinical environments and help make sure that um, they can advocate for themselves as well. So we've worked with Genetic Alliance UK to help make sure that their member organizations are aware of the study, that we can communicate key aspects of the study um, to answer some of the questions that they have, because many of those patient organizations are very used to supporting questions from families that have been newly diagnosed, but they're also conscious that this might be a new, uh, slightly new territory for them too, because they may be contacted by families who have been diagnosed before their child's showing any symptoms. And that can be a different kind of journey to navigate through. And those patient organizations want to know enough about how our study works and, and to be able to sort of help support those questions and to signpost them. We've also been working on um, some 
kind of high level accessible information, uh, like a condition information sheet for each of the sort of 200 plus conditions that we'll be looking for in the study. And we've been working with different patient organizations through Genetic Alliance UK to help us to review those and make sure that we're giving information that's kind of accessible to families and that we can also signpost them to the uh, kind of um, kind of helpful patient organizations because we know, and this is a completely natural thing to do, when you first are told that your child might have a condition, you'll want to go to Google and look up everything you possibly can about it. We know we can't necessarily stop that, but we just want to at least be able to direct them to some helpful and reliable sources of information as part of that process. Yeah, I really appreciate the thoughtful collaboration that has gone into that, especially with the patient advocacy orgs. Just out of curiosity, does Genomics England have any interest or is maybe one of the projects potentially going to be looking at sequencing umbrella groups like people who have a cerebral palsy diagnosis and epilepsy diagnosis and autism diagnosis? Because I know as someone who's you know very involved in this rare disease community here in the U.S., many, most of those kids are given that diagnosis and they just go home and they don't necessarily realize that perhaps they should get genetic testing or that, you know, I think they say that a little over 30% of the people with a diagnosis of one of those three things actually has a genetic etiology. So I wonder, have you guys thought about adding that to one of your initiatives or sticking with the newborn stuff? Oh, that's a great question. I am aware that there are some other research studies happening in the UK at the moment, one in particular, for example, that is looking at sort of genetic testing in, in um, children with cerebral palsy for exactly the reason you described, that very often that might be a diagnosis given and it might not be an immediate next step to think about genetic testing. And that might mean that some cases are missed when it could be that there's different sort of care that they need. So there are some other research studies that are looking into that. It's not something that we're um, sort of specifically doing in genomics England at the moment. That being said, a lot of the um, kind of indications to have whole genome sequencing can be quite broad. One example is intellectual disability. So if there's a child or an adult that has and a significant intellectual disability, and particularly if they have had other developmental or growth or maybe sort of uh, birth defect kind of issues as well, uh, that that should prompt a clinician to think about genetic testing and potentially genome sequencing. So um, that kind of, that can be quite a broad area. And there are many, many different genes and conditions that can be linked to intellectual disability in some way. And a lot of the research that also happens in our research environment is linked to some of those genes that may cause um, a form of intellectual disability. So um, really the, the focus has been a lot on those kind of rare conditions as opposed to some that might be more common or that might be multifactorial where there might be a mixture of genetic and other factors at play. But there are definitely, I'm aware of other research studies in the UK that are looking at things like that as well. Okay, like with your, with your like bedside clinic genetic counseling hat on, what advice do you have for families who might be considering genetic testing, and also specifically in the UK, how can they advocate for themselves to navigate that or to get those tests offered to them or to even maybe know that they should consider it? Oh, that is a huge question. I mean, the best way to think about this is, is just the different levels at which that awareness is really important. And in a way that kind of starts with 
general public awareness. And I think there's some like there are some great um, organizations out there that aren't necessarily just focused on um, health or research in in the way that maybe at Genomics England we are, but they're really thinking about um, how to raise awareness about genes and health with the public. And that could be initiatives or sometimes even just TV programs, fictional or non-fictional, that help us think about our kind of DNA story. Where are we from? What is our family history? Why is it interesting for us to think about our family history and ask questions about that? When Angelina Jolie came out a few years ago now to share that she had a you know change in the BRCA1 gene and that she was having preventative surgery as a result, that story in and of itself and, and being quite a high profile individual significantly increased the number of referrals that were seen coming into genetic services. And I think that's because it just helped to raise people's awareness in general about the fact that things can be inherited in families. And if someone is wondering about that, then it's worth seeking out, you know, a referral or asking their GP or primary care provider to refer them in and, and think about if there's anything more that can be done. So often it starts um, sometimes in unexpected ways or through broad media that helps people think about when they might want to ask those questions. I think that one of the next layers is, well, you know, what do you do when maybe you have hadn't thought about that previously, but you now have a child or you're experiencing yourself, you know, an array of different symptoms or things that have been really challenging to get to the bottom of. And that can be really distressing because again, it can feel really isolating, really hard to get support and know where to go next. So I think the, my advice, I guess, to families is again, just asking those questions, not being afraid to be an advocate for yourself, which I think you know, most people really don't need to be told to do. That's absolutely what they're fighting for. And then that's where organizations like Genomics England and other organizations can try and help meet people where they're at uh, by doing things like helping to train up healthcare professionals and giving them that broader awareness of why genomics is important or where if you're seeing a very young person with a cancer that you'd normally expect to see in a much older person, it you know, it doesn't take too long to ask whether there's other members of their family that have had cancer. And if it turns out that many of them have, um, it's knowing when to raise the red flag to say, this is something that's less usual than I would normally see in my practice. Um, I need to, to, to phone a friend to sort of get some support. So a lot of that is about that awareness raising and, and making that information available in a just-in-time way, because a very busy healthcare professional or very busy family, uh, it's going to be hard to sort of search through the internet and find reliable sources to uh, and be able to wade through a lot of um, you know academic publications and try and make sense about you know a, a particular gene or a syndrome that can be quite difficult so being able to have information available and again this is where patient organizations are so helpful in an accessible way that explains things about genes and conditions in a language that anyone regardless of whether they have a science background or a medical background or not can understand is so helpful and that's obviously really useful to then signpost families or other healthcare professionals to the right kind of specialist that can help with those next steps. So yes, it's probably a really long-winded answer that doesn't fully answer your question, but it's because there's so many different things, I guess, that we have to think about to help make improvements here. But um, your podcast is a great example. Podcasts are great ways for people to listen to information that might be relevant to genetics and health. And sometimes that's what might trigger them to ask more questions and go speak to someone else about it. Yeah, no, I mean, so thoughtful and thorough and the epitome of a GC's response. 
months. I feel like we all need one of you in our DMs or on a text when when we when we have questions. I really appreciate it. And I'm so grateful that I got to learn more about Genomics England. You all have such a great reputation and I'm really excited to continue to follow the outcome of these projects. So yeah, I mean, is there anything that I didn't ask today that I should have? I guess maybe an interesting question is always kind of what's next. And that's sort of something that as Genomics England, we're always having to think about, um, and I'm sure many patients are having to think about, and, and healthcare professionals as well. Like we talk about genomics so much as a technology, but we, in terms of what's next, uh, is always a question that maybe we don't give as much time to think about. And the reason that I think we always should is because often the what's next question can come with some really tricky ethical issues for that isn't just for one person but for a society to kind of have to deliberate so you know whether we whether and how we should use genome sequencing technology as part of other specific gene therapies or treatments um, and how we do that especially when those might be therapies or gene treatments that could have an impact on the next generation so a lot of these questions i think are also ones that, I mean, as Genomics England, we're just one organization that's trying to do some of that public engagement to help answer. And I think having, again, having healthcare professionals like genetic counselors are really useful with that expertise to help navigate that, but also working with other disciplines that are thinking about the large amounts of health data that we're collecting and how we use that safely. And how can we make that available to researchers in a, in a way that's valuable so that we can make information available to families in a quick way, but also in a way that's really safe because we're holding a lot of that data that's really precious and that is owned by the individuals whose data it is. So I think the question of what's next is one that we also kind of need to think carefully about, including a lot of those sort of ethical issues around privacy and consent and confidentiality and uncertainty um, that the, that genomic testing and results could bring. Um, and it's important that we include those wider um, sort of questions in our discussions too. Yeah, well, I'm glad they have you on board to remember that voice. That's really excellent. Where can people contact you or Genomics England in general, uh, the patient advocacy groups or the patients themselves if they have more questions? Yes, yeah, Genomics England we um, have a website and that's the best sort of landing place to go to to find out more about some of the work that we're doing. That's just www.genomicsengland.co.uk. And then I mentioned Genetic Alliance UK are an organization that includes a lot of patient organization members and that's geneticalliance.org.uk. Um, they have lots of great information on there as well and links to some of their member groups where people can kind of, you know, find one if they're thinking about a particularly rare condition. And again, some of these rare conditions are so rare that international networks are so important. So um, Genetic Alliance is a great place to to start um, looking for those. Awesome. Well, Amanda, thanks for being my guest today. I feel like I'd, I could just listen to you talk about genetics all day. It's so calming in a, in a way. But thank you so much. I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing this episode, especially for our, our international listeners to get to know you a little better. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to have this conversation. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.